I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be reading from all four of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So today we'll be reading Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38, and then John chapter 13, beginning with verse 36, down through chapter 14, verse 31. Now here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. Jesus here is addressing the twelve, and it's on the eve of his crucifixion. They are, of course, in Jerusalem. In our first section of Scripture from all four Gospels, the denial is foretold. We're looking at Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, Mark 14, verses 27 to 31, Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, and John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. First, Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Mark's account of this incident begins in verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Now over to Luke chapter 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And then John's account is found in John chapter 13, beginning with verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, this is a very sobering passage of Scripture, all taking place the night leading up to the crucifixion. 
Matthew and Mark point out that Jesus' words regarding denial were directed toward all the disciples, but Luke and John just mentioned Peter's anticipated denial. Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 13:7, there to indicate that even the denial of the Messiah by his own followers was a fact of Old Testament prophecy. However, Peter is very adamant that though all the other disciples may deny Jesus, he absolutely positively would not to the death. Jesus assures Peter that even he will deny him. However, in Luke 22:32, Jesus expresses confidence in Peter after the denial when he says, "But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren." The word converted that's found in the King James Version, when it says, and when thou art converted, that's a translation of the Greek word epistrepho, which means to return to a point or area where one has been before. In other words, while Peter will deny Jesus, he will return to his place among the disciples where he will strengthen and feed them. It should be noted that ultimately all of Jesus' disciples would deny him. As it happens, Peter's denial is more prominently displayed in the gospel accounts, but actually, no one stood with Jesus at his trial. Mark 14.50 says, Then they all forsook him and fled. What about the swords in Luke 22, verses 35 through 38? Well, let's read about them. Verse 35, And he said to them, When I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. So here Jesus refers to the sending of the 70 disciples to preach the kingdom message back in Luke chapter 10. The money bag, knapsack, and sandals here are obvious references to Luke chapter 10 verse 4 where back then he said, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals and greet no one along the road. It would appear that Jesus is teaching a lesson about the change discipleship was about to undergo, but they took him literally. I think the lesson intended by Jesus to be understood by his disciples was one of contrast. The 70 returned with their mission complete without notable resistance. From this time forward, the resistance will be intense right down to the crucifixion. Peter obviously missed the object lesson here and strapped one of those swords, which he used at the capture of Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 10, which says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Isaiah chapter 53 prophesies the crucifixion of the Messiah. Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12, here in verse 37, when he says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is clearly preparing his disciples for his capture and subsequent crucifixion. With that being said, it's still admittedly difficult to account for every aspect of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, especially the it is enough reference of verse 38. Some have suggested that these words were intended by Jesus to put a stop to a conversation which the disciples did not seem to be properly comprehending. 
Others have suggested that the phrase was intended to indicate that two swords are sufficient. Sufficient for what, you might ask? Well, it is felt by some that the numbered with the transgressors phrase from Isaiah 53.12 was fulfilled in that two swords were on hand in the garden at the capture of Jesus, thus making them transgressors. Conjecture is simply all that we have on this one. In John chapter 14, we switch gears a little bit and we see that Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the crucifixion. Jesus has talked a great deal about the kingdom on earth through his ministry. As a matter of fact, that kingdom is the one prophesied by the Old Testament prophets foretelling the reign of the Messiah over the entire earth. Jesus is that Messiah. But in accordance with the prophets, the Messiah must first suffer and be crucified. The discourse of Jesus in chapters 14 through 16 of John takes place after the Passover supper, the night before Jesus is crucified. Jesus goes into great detail, giving perspective to the disciples on exactly what to expect. We begin reading with chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's obvious at the beginning of John 14 that the disciples are on a different thinking track than Jesus. Their questions and comments indicate that they're thinking about an earthly kingdom, while Jesus is now talking about a spiritual kingdom. As Jesus had preached to the Jewish masses for three-plus years previous to this time, he had talked frequently about the earthly messianic kingdom, but not here. The emphasis here has changed so as to equip them for the immediate future. Jesus begins by talking about the house prepared for them in heaven in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 demonstrates that this talk of heaven rather than an earthly rule was confusing to Thomas. He indicates that he does not quite understand when he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Verse 6 is your apologetics verse for proclaiming your position in Christ. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no need to argue or explain. Just quote John 14:6. Now, someone may reply to you, well, don't you think that all religions are about the same if you're sincere? Nah, don't argue. Just once again, quote John 14:6. It really explains itself, and these are the very words of Jesus. Now, someone may come back to you with a question like this. Do you mean to tell me that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell? Well, don't even argue about that. Just quote once again John 14:6 because that verse says it all. Incidentally, the Greek word for mansion in verse 2 is mone. It's only used twice in the New Testament here and verse 23 where there it's translated home. Quite literally, it means a place to stay. So, will our place to stay in heaven be mansion-style nice? <laughs> well, need you ask? You'll also notice that in verse 3, Jesus indicates that he, at first, must go and prepare a place for his disciples, after which he will come and receive them. 
This is undoubtedly a reference to the rapture of the church discussed by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58. The second coming of Jesus Christ takes place later when Jesus actually comes back to earth to establish the earthly rule about which Jesus has been speaking in earlier discourses. Look at my notes on Matthew 24 and 25 for more detail there. Jesus talks of a revelation of God the Father in verses 7 through 14 of John chapter 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father." And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I find Philip's request of verse 8 indicative of the state of mind of the disciples at this point in time. Keep in mind, they've been thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom to be established right away. Now, they're being told that instead, they'll be introduced to the Father, God himself, Jesus mildly rebukes Philip for not already understanding the mission at hand and for not recognizing that when you see Jesus, you see God the Father. He then clearly explains that he is God. Verses 12 through 14 have often been abused by well-meaning believers who want to get things moving. Let's not beat around the bush on this one. They had seen Jesus perform some awesome miracles during the previous three-plus years of ministry. So when Jesus says in verse 12 the following, he says, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, what do you think Jesus intends to convey here? I don't think we need to try to explain away this statement. We simply need to add the formula found in verses 13 and 14, the in my name formula. It's common to append the words, in my name, to the end of our prayers. That appendage doesn't make it so. In my name absolutely means under the authorization of. Now, here's an example. When I was in college, I worked at a bank full-time and eventually became a lending officer and assistant branch manager. As such, I was authorized by the bank under very strict circumstances to sign cashier's checks, sometimes very large. I had no authority whatsoever to indiscriminately write checks. I only had the authority to do it when the bank's criteria for doing so was met, and then I was authorized by the bank to write that check. That's what in my name means. I'm convinced that God still performs miracles today through believers who are in tune with what God is authorizing in his name. Now, here's the problem today. Many have been taught that there is something magical about the words in Jesus' name. Armed with that misunderstanding, they claim frivolous things in Jesus' name, only to be disappointed at their lack of success, at their bad track record. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, 
Those two verses provide a valuable insight into this very issue of prayer where John writes this. He says, Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Praying in Jesus' name literally means praying according to his will, God's will. When we pray according to his will, he will always answer that prayer. Of course, the key here is to pray according to God's will. Now, how does one know when he's doing that? How do you know when you're praying according to God's will? Well, the key to praying according to God's will is found in James chapter 1, verse 5. Here's what that verse says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You can pray with absolute assurance that you're praying according to God's will when you first pray for wisdom. Wisdom, by the way, in this context is knowing the will of God. After I have prayed for wisdom, I will be impressed by the Holy Spirit with a knowledge of the will of God, and that's what wisdom is. Now, after I get that wisdom, I can pray specifically and with confidence in exactly the way that God has shown me to pray. Only then can I legitimately pray in Jesus' name. In verses 15 to 31, we see that help is on the way. Verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to my Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Jesus then begins to, in this passage, introduce life after he's gone. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they, and we, by the way, will be able to be empowered in our praying in Jesus' name. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper in verse 16. 
The Greek word for helper there is parakletos. It's used only by Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 16, 26, John chapter 15, verse 26, and John chapter 16, verse 7. And then once again by John himself in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. But there it's translated advocate in the King James Version and the New King James Version. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers introduced by Jesus here is a foundational principle of life in Christ for all those who trust Jesus as their personal Savior. That's where the power for Christians to live a separated life comes from. Without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, salvation would be an empty proposition. However, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have an ever-abiding partner who serves as our counselor and advocate, our helper, so to speak, and he's always on the clock. To demonstrate that the disciples are still attempting to comprehend what seems like a change of plans, Judas, that's the good one, not, not as scary, the traitor, Judas asks a pointed question in verse 22. He obviously has been thinking in terms of the establishment of an earthly kingdom up to this point as well. He then asks this question, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Well, that's in response to Jesus' guarantee of individual manifestation in verse 21. Judas obviously was thinking, if Jesus is the Messiah over a worldwide kingdom, how is it that he will only be selectively manifested to certain individuals? However, Jesus is now talking about the very process of individual salvation, and he's not here talking about an earthly kingdom. Moreover, Jesus introduces to them the clear understanding that the prince of this world, being Satan, is coming. So who's going to put this whole thing into perspective? Jesus answers that question as well in verse 26 when he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to provide the direction of Jesus in every believer. Life after salvation is differentiated and defined by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes a reference to Satan himself in verse 30 when he says this. He says, For the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Paul puts this prince or this ruler reference into perspective in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In both passages, the Greek word archon is translated as prince in the King James Version and as ruler and prince in the New King James Version. Paul also identifies Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, "...whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe." Satan hoped the crucifixion would solve his problems, but the resurrection three days later, well, that had to be very disappointing to Satan. While Satan is not omniscient, he should have known what was up with Jesus' own words in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33. Here's what Jesus said back then. He said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying what death he would die. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. 
The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.